From Brennan to the Boca Chill, from Lamy to La Push, and from the lordly Sawduck to lovely Duckabush. From Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, the climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for episode 59, The Tale of the Three Kichis. The first Japanese people that were known to have visited what is now the Evergreen State were wayward sailors who ran aground in their rudderless ship called the Hojin Maru on the northern tip of the Olympic Peninsula. The Hojin Maru had originated in southeast Japan and was only making a trip of a couple hundred miles to Edo, which is now known as Tokyo. The vessel left its home port in October of 1832, but before it could reach Edo, it was struck by a typhoon and was swept way out to sea. The wayward travelers ended up drifting for over a year and made it some 5,000 miles away before finally reaching the rugged northern coast of what would become the Evergreen State. Of the crew of 14 that set out from southeastern Japan that October of 1832, by the time the Hojin Maru ran aground in January of 1834, only three had survived the ordeal. The names of these men were Iwakichi, Kiyokuchi, and Odokichi. These men, having long been called the Three Kichis, and after being discovered by Macaw Native Americans, they would be briefly imprisoned before being freed by the Hudson's Bay Company. The men must have been so very confused, and they ended up spending the next couple of months at Fort Vancouver before they were sent to London, then on to China, and they quickly became pawns in a large-scale diplomatic game of checkers involving Japan and the rest of the outside world. The three Kichis were never able to return to their homeland of Japan. For you see, Japan during the 1830s had been closed to nearly all foreigners for a period of almost 200 years. Starting in 1635, the hereditary military rulers of Japan, called the Shogunate, began issuing a series of edicts that were meant to totally insulate the country from the negative outside influences they saw that were beginning to permeate their country just a little too much for comfort. The Shogunate only let a handful of Chinese and Dutch traders have continuing access to trade with the now-closed country, and the country even went so far as to make Christianity a capital offense. The traders that were allowed access were not allowed to touch Japanese soil, and a man-made island was constructed near Nagasaki to ensure that this remained so. In addition to all of this, no citizen of Japan was allowed to leave the country. If you did choose to leave, or even left inadvertently, you were never allowed to return, for any who left were considered to be contaminated, which was exactly the case with the three Kichis nearly 200 years later. To make the possibility of straying too far from the Japanese islands, the shogunate outright banned the construction of sailing vessels that were capable of handling the open seas, so it's incredible to think that the simple boat was able to cross the Pacific and the three men survived for over 14 months. The boat the men was on was typically referred to as a Sengo Kabune, which were single-masted sailing vessels that had large rudders that could actually be raised or lowered depending on the water depth. These little boats were used for local trade, and the boat the three Kichis were on was actually carrying a cargo of rice and porcelain. The size of the rudder was a huge advantage when it came to navigating the typically shallow coastal waters around the Japanese islands, but was at an extreme disadvantage if the boat encountered storms or heavy seas because it was so easy for the rudder to be torn away. Usually if this happened, the crews, in an effort to try and provide some stability for the craft, would cut down the mast. 
This meant that without a rudder or a sail, the boat would be left totally adrift with no way to get back to their home port. The Hojin Maru left its port at Anura, which is actually part of Mahamacho, which is located on the Chida Peninsula. On the 11th of October, 1832, bound for Edo with a full cargo of rice and locally made chinaware. The Hojin Maru was about 50 feet long and carried upwards of 150 tons of cargo and was considered to be quite large for a Sengo Kabuni for its time. Its crew of 14 was composed of men all from the local village where the Hojin Maru departed. The 28-year-old Iwakichi served aboard the vessel as its navigator, while Kayakuchi, age 15, and Orokichi, who was 14, worked aboard the Hojin Maru as apprentice cooks. It was very common at the time for the working class of Japan to not have surnames, and at the time, there were very few options for a career for young men growing up in rural places like Anura during the 1830s. Mainly, you had your choice between rice farming, sailing, or fishing. These occupations were mainly determined by what your family had done before you, so it's very likely that all the men aboard the Hojin Maru knew from a very young age that someday they would end up working on a Sengo Kabune cargo ship. After sailing from Ise Bay on the 3rd of November 1832, the vessel was caught smack dab in the middle of a huge storm and was subsequently stripped of its rudder. The Hojin Maru was then carried away by the powerful black current known as the Kurashio, which sweeps from Japan all the way to the coast of North America. Everyone from their hometown assumed that all souls aboard the vessel had gone down with the ship, and so they had a tombstone carved with the names of the lost sailors built to appease the spirits of the dead, and actually, this marker still stands today in a graveyard of a Buddhist temple. Instead of sinking like their families thought, the Hojin Maru ended up drifting for well over a year. Due to the solidly built hull of the vessel, it was somewhat seaworthy. The crew also had a well-stocked cargo of rice that would be supplemented by fish and the off-seagull every now and then, but the crew had no access to vitamin C, so by the time the Hojin Maru washed up on the Olympic Peninsula, all but three members of the crew had died from scurvy. The three men that had survived the ordeal were incredibly weak and emaciated, and they staggered from the shipwreck near Cape Flattery, where they were quickly discovered by a group of macaw seal hunters. Though traces of Japan were not entirely a new thing, this was more than likely the first time that any Japanese people had been in what would become the Evergreen State, and probably caused quite a surprise among the tribesmen and the three sailors, for neither group knew that the other had existed, since, at the time, Japan was closed, and the Macaw really only had limited contact with Europeans, and had no previous contact with any Asian people. It is believed that over 1,000 ships disappeared during the era of exclusion from 1633 to 1854. Most probably did sink in storms, but there have been several iron fittings and other remnants of these Japanese sailing vessels that have washed up on the coast of the Evergreen State. A few of these ships even drifted to other points south of the PNW with survivors on board, with likely the best-known instance of this being the case involving the Tokujo Maru. This vessel ended up running aground near Santa Barbara, California in 1813 with three survivors out of a crew of 14, the same numbers from the wreck of the Hojin Maru, which is just a little bit weird. It's not until the wreck of the Hojin Maru, though, that there is concrete, written proof that survivors reached the shores of the Pacific Northwest. Sorry, I don't consider California to be any part of the PNW. The Macaw hunters, upon finding the three weak and severely emaciated men, continued on to board the wreck of the Hojin Maru and take a number of items, among them a string of copper coins, a map that included beautiful Japanese script, and various ceramic bowls. The three Kichis would then be marched to an inland Macaw village where they were kept as slaves for the next couple of months.
News of these men being held captive by the Macaw eventually made its way to the ear of John McLaughlin, who was chief factor of Fort Vancouver, which was at that point in time the headquarters of the Hudson's Bay Company's massive Columbia Department. Variously described as a letter or a drawing on a piece of china paper, it had been passed from tribe to tribe and then finally made its way into the hands of an employee of the Hudson's Bay Company. This depicted the three sailors who had been shipwrecked, the shipwreck jammed amongst the rocky coast, and also showed natives taking cargo from the vessel. Written next to this was what the chief factor wrongly thought to be Chinese characters, which led him to assume that these sailors were Chinese and greatly excited the man who wrote as much in the letters he sent back to company headquarters in London. In one such letter, dated the 28th of May, 1834, he wrote, Last winter the Indians informed us that a vessel had been wrecked somewhere about Cape Flattery. A few days ago I received through the Indians a letter written in Chinese characters. They say the vessel was loaded with China wares. This event was sort of like the modern-day equivalent of Martians landing right in the middle of Pioneer Square, so hearing that a Chinese or Japanese ship had washed up was big news. Even to most whites, let alone Native Americans, very little was known about Asia at the time. Chief Factor McLaughlin, in the spring of 1834, dispatched an overland party to try and ransom the wayward sailors, which was led by his stepson Thomas McKay. This effort, however, would be slowed greatly by marshy terrain and very rough weather, and would quickly be abandoned. Two months later, in May of 1834, McLaughlin ordered William H. McNeil, of which McNeil Island is named for, to fetch the men by sea. William was then currently serving as the captain of the Hudson's Bay Company's brig Llama, and he was sent north quite frequently to sail from Fort Langley on Vancouver Island down to Fort Nisqually in what is now DuPont. The fort's current home at Point Defiance Park in Tacoma is freaking awesome, but not where it would have been, historically speaking. He was instructed to stop both coming and going at Cape Flattery and to do his utmost to recover the unfortunate people said to be wrecked in the vicinity of that place. McLaughlin also instructed Captain McNeil to reward the Indians for their trouble so as to induce them, if any should be so unfortunate as to be wrecked on their shores, to treat them with kindness. The Fort Nisqually Journal reported on the arrival of two Chinese people on the 9th of June, 1834, aboard the Lama. Iwakichi and Kayakuchi had been rescued, but at the time, Odokichi was out gathering berries in the surrounding forest and missed his first chance at a rescue. Captain McNeil later returned for Odokichi, and all three wayward sailors were brought to Fort Vancouver sometime that July. All three found life at Fort Vancouver full of new wonders and oddities, and they were introduced to forks, trousers, and windows that had glass. And they witnessed the worship of the Christian god, which was something that would have been punishable by death back home. They also ate red meat, which was something that was generally frowned upon in Japan at the time. Jason Lee, a Methodist missionary, noted their presence at a service he conducted at the fort in September of 1834 and under the tutelage of Cyrus Shepard, an assistant to Lee, who was hired to take over the school at the fort, began to teach them English. Shepard would praise the progress the three had made in a letter to his superiors at the end of 1834. He noted their rapid improvement and that they were remarkably studious and docile. Also deemed of note by Lee was how he had taught them to repeat the Lord's Prayer and a couple of portions of Scripture. He had no clue that his hopes of the men carrying the word of the gospel to his countrymen would bring them death, but still the man persisted. Another thing to consider for the time was the polyracial nature that was Fort Vancouver under the Hudson's Bay Company. The 1830s at the fort saw British, Scottish, and Irish employees of the company mixing it up with Hawaiian workers, sometimes referred to as Kanakas or Hawaii's, French-Canadian trappers, and dozens of Native American tribes that traded and gathered at the fort and passed through. 
Japan at the time that Iwakichi Kayakuchi and Orokichi left was starkly homogenous. A young boy by the name of Ranald MacDonald was one of the many people that had been coming and going at the fort. Young Ranald was half Scot and half Chinook, and he was born to the daughter of the Chinook leader Comcomly and Archibald MacDonald, who was a high-ranking employee of the Hudson's Bay Company. Ranald's father educated him until he was 10 years old when he then enrolled him into the school that was held at Fort Vancouver during the winter of 1833-34. You may know Ranald MacDonald as the first American that voluntarily traveled to Japan when he illegally entered the country in 1848. He booked passage on a whaling ship that he knew had to pass through Japanese waters and proceeded to row himself ashore in a small rowboat from the whaling ship. He was caught soon after making landfall and was imprisoned for about 10 months, but during his incarceration, he was allowed to teach English to a select number of students while he awaited his deportation. In 1853, when Commodore Perry sailed his four black ships into Tokyo Bay, effectively forcing an end to Japan's seclusion era, one of the former students of Ranald's lessons in English helped to negotiate trade agreements that began to bind the U.S. and Japan together. One story that is often regurgitated on end is that MacDonald ended up meeting the sailors while at the school at Fort Vancouver, then befriended Iwakichi Kayakuchi and Orokichi as he helped to nurse them back to health. It's stated that he taught them English in exchange for them teaching him Japanese. This story has been mythologized so much that many just take it at face value today and assume that it's true. But in fact, Ranald left the fort with his father in March of 1834, a couple of months before the sailors had arrived. There is no doubt that he heard stories concerning the truly exotic visitors, and the stories more than likely would have planted the seed that led to his later adventures in life, but the notion that he met the three Kichis at Fort Vancouver is just simply hogwash. Frederick L. Schott wrote in his book, Native American in the Land of the Shogun, the historical vectors of Ranald MacDonald and his father and that the three Kichis come so close to intersecting that it is almost hard to imagine how they did not meet. Yet a close inspection of the actual historical record reveals that the lines never completely converged, at least not in North America. The author did add that it was likely possible that MacDonald did meet with Kayakichi very briefly in Hong Kong after he had been ejected from Japan, but that's almost another story in itself. As soon as Chief Factor John McLaughlin realized that the three Kichis were not Chinese, but Japanese, he began to scheme as to how these men could be used to help open up trade between the British and the Japanese that the Brits had been pushing for for a long time. McLaughlin wrote to the head of the Hudson's Bay Company over in London, As I believe they are the first Japanese who have been in the power of the British nation, the British government would gladly avail itself of this opportunity to endeavor to open a communication with the Japanese government. McLaughlin decided that it would be prudent to send the men on the next available ship that was going to London. He thought that if they saw the great capital city of London, and explained as much in a letter dated from the 18th of November, 1834, he wrote, They would have an opportunity of being instructed and convey to their countrymen a respectable idea of the grandeur and power of the British nation. Iwakichi Kayakichi and Orokichi left Fort Vancouver aboard the HBC brig on the 15th of November, 1834. They were bound for London by way of Hawaii and the Straits of Magellan. The three men brought with them several so-called souvenirs from the Hojinmaru, including a piece of carved wood with what McLaughlin still described to be Chinese, but it was actually just the name of the vessel in Japanese. It's like this guy had to try and be this dense. Officials in London were a bit flabbergasted that McLaughlin had actually sent the three castaways to London, for they were far too preoccupied with their relations with the Chinese to worry about trying to open relations by way of three wayward sailors. 
They claimed the men should have been dropped off in Hawaii to find their own way home, and the three men had to stay aboard the Beagle for more than a week after it arrived in London in June of 1835. The government couldn't quite figure out exactly what they were supposed to do with these castaways, but they finally were put aboard another ship that was bound for the Chinese port city of Makoa, which meant that their bizarre journey would continue, bringing them halfway around the world again. The day before the ship was scheduled to depart, the three were allowed to tour London for the day. Apparently, Henry John Temple, otherwise known as Lord Palmerston, agreed with Chief Factor McLaughlin that it would behoove the British if they showed the three men around to show them the grandeur and might of the British people in case the three ever made it back to their home country. In addition to Iwakichi, Kayokichi, and Otokichi being the first Japanese to have visited the future Evergreen State, they also became the first Japanese men to have visited London. This must have been quite the extraordinary visit for the men because they came from a small village in Japan that neither required education to earn a living or the knowledge of the outside world to live their lives. London was by far the largest cosmopolitan city in the world and must have presented the men with quite the sight when back home all they had were buildings no more than a couple of stories high. When the men reached Macau, the British ended up handing the three wayward sailors over to a German missionary and linguist by the name of Karl Gutzlaff, who continued the training of Iwakichi, Kayakichi, and Otokichi into English, and also used their help to translate some of the Bible into Japanese. The three men would be supported by the British consul and trade commissioner in Macau for the next two years, but after that period, it was announced that the men would no longer be supported. The three of them must have been very confused, for over that two-year period of time, no attempt at all had been made to return them home to Japan, and they were going to be abandoned without any means of support in a land they really didn't know anything about. Around the same time that the three found out that the British would no longer be supporting them, four other shipwrecked Japanese sailors showed up in Macau. These men had been recently rescued from an island that they had washed up on in the Philippines. An American dealer in Chinese silks, Charles W. King, had been the man responsible for rescuing these four sailors, and soon he was working out a plan that would supposedly bring him great fortune by returning the seven sailors to Japan. Mr. King was also a supporter of the missionary work that the Protestants were undertaking, and he vigorously welcomed the chance to try and spread Christianity in Japan. You'd think people would be a little wary with preaching in the country since it could cost your life, but eh, maybe they didn't know since the country was so reclusive. Mr. King and the now seven wayward sailors sailed for Japan on the 4th of July of 1837 aboard the Morrison, a ship that was owned by the trading company that King owned. Also aboard were two American missionaries. When the Morrison reached the mouth of Edo Bay on the 30th of July, the ship and crew were greeted by cannon fire from the shore. Mr. King and the Morrison then sailed on to Kagoshima Bay, but they were greeted with cannon fire once again. This time, the Morrisons sustained some damage from the cannon fire, so the mission of returning the three Kichis and the other four sailors was aborted, and the ship headed back to the port at Macau. These three men had come so close to being back in their homeland, only to be roughly turned away by cannon fire. These men were just ordinary sailors who had done nothing wrong, they were just dealt a harsh hand by fate, and despite every odd being stacked against them, they survived, only to be cruelly prevented from returning home by their own government. Once the Morrison reached Macau, the three Kichis were pretty much left to fend entirely for themselves, and most of the seven sailors that boarded the Morrison on that 4th of July headed for Japan faded entirely from the historical record. However, Orokichi, who was the youngest of the three survivors of the wreck of the Hojinmaru, was 14 when his journey began. Mr. Orokichi went on to become a very well-regarded translator who ended up working for a time for Charles W. King's company. 
At one point in time, he traveled to New York aboard the Morrison, and then later he was under the employment of British businessmen and government officials in China. He then went on to settle down in Shanghai, and that's where he married an either English or Scottish woman, depending on the account you read, and changed his name to John Matthew Ottoson. This new surname of his was reportedly derived from the way that his Japanese companions had called him Ottoson. Mr. Ottoson eventually became a British citizen and returned to Japan on two very brief occasions. The first, in 1849, found him working as an interpreter aboard a British ship that was inside Japanese waters carrying out topographical work. The second trip to Japan occurred five years later in 1854, when he ended up accompanying Admiral Sir James Sterling to the Anglo-Japanese Convention that resulted in a so-called Peace and Amity Treaty between the British and the Japanese. It was at this time that Orokichi was offered an opportunity to finally return to his homeland and live there, but he quickly refused. This probably came down to the bitter feelings he harbored from the rejection by cannon fire he and his companions experienced 19 years prior aboard the Morrison. He also had quite the comfortable life in Shanghai, so it made the decision to turn down the offer a pretty easy one for him. It's unclear as to whether Odokichi's first wife passed away or they divorced, but historical records show that he married a Malay woman and by 1862 the family, which by now included several children, had moved to Singapore where Odokichi's second wife was born. It was there that Odokichi passed away at the age of 49 in January of 1867. He would be buried in a Christian cemetery, but in 2004 his remains would be exhumed and cremated, with a portion of his remains being brought back to his birthplace in Mahama the next year. 173 years after embarking on that fateful trip to Edo, Odokichi finally returned home. In 1989, a two-ton granite monument was erected at the Fort Vancouver National Historical Site to commemorate the wayward sailors. It's located just west of the Visitor Center and was donated by the Hyogo Boy Scouts Rover Troop, who received assistance from the National Park Service, the Washington Centennial Commission, and the Japanese American Citizens League. It was dedicated on the 1st of August of that year, with the ceremony being held in a downpour, but that didn't stop some 200 people, which included about 50 Boy Scouts from Hyogo, gathering to witness the occasion. On hand at the event that day was the governor of Hyogo Prefecture, Toshitama, Kahara, and other officials from the Evergreen State in Japan. This was part of a series of events across the state that year for the centennial of the Evergreen State and also marked the 25th anniversary of the sister-state relationship between Hyogo Prefecture and Washington. The seven-foot-tall monument contains a likeness of three sailors and also contains Japanese inscriptions that are carved into one side and the only two words that are in English are on a small plaque made of copper on the other side of the monument. This monument does contain a wild inaccuracy, though, when it states that the three Kichis were the first Japanese to arrive on the continent of North America. Like I stated at the beginning of the show, a number of other Japanese sailors preceded them in that regard, including the three who reached the coast of California in 1813, but the three Kichis were the first Japanese that are known to have visited the Evergreen State. The Japanese text that is on the monument represents a small hijacking of historical accuracy as well. The most prominent name that is on the mounting man actually is that of the Hyogo Prefecture Governor in 1989. Regardless of these inaccuracies, this monument does stand as an important historical and symbolic link between the Evergreen State and Japan. It's become pretty popular with Japanese tourists and school groups, and is totally worth a stop if you have never seen it before. Fort Vancouver as a whole is worth checking out and is full of history. This tale is one that binds our people together in an interesting way, and it's one of endurance, courage, commitment, and compassion.
If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Leaving a 5-star review really helps the show to grow and to continue to expand its audience, so any help that you can give in that regard will be greatly appreciated. Sources for this episode include the Royal British Columbia Museum, the Naval History Center, the Seattle Times, jmautoson.com, historylink.org, the Northwest News Network, the National Park Service, the Seattle PI, and Native American in the Land of the Shogun, Ranald MacDonald, and the Opening of Japan by Frederick L. Schott. Thank you for listening to Episode 59, The Tale of the Three Kichis. Episode 60 will be released next week. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact History of the Evergreen State Pod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queens and on the Hoh. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stilicum, where spouts the gooey duck, the singing Stilaguamish and the swirling Skookum Chuck, and Moclips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound.